0: Welcome back to Real Talk, everyone. I am here with the Velvet Voice, Zoe Pringle.
1: Good morning.
0: (laughs) Who's a little under the weather, so maybe the Velvet sounds a little different today. (laughs) Um, And Dr. Diane Ariza, who is our uh, executive producer, the co-founder of the podcast originally. So the original podcaster. As, as you know, we have diversity in the title of our podcast, and we, we come at diversity, we think about it as a big umbrella, we talk about all kinds of issues, but today we're really sort of specifically honing in on diversity itself, um, you know, the subject of national debate and backlash, and so we're going to talk about, you know, when we are talking about diversity, and we're here with our, our vice president of, of diversity for the university, what is it that that we're talking about specifically um, when it comes to diversifying leadership? So you're the, the best one to have here, Diane,
2: for this conversation
0: with our guest today. Yes, this
2: is great. I want to say more about that, but maybe wait a little or?
0: Yeah, sure. Sure, sure, sure. Sure, sure, sure. So our sure. guest today uh, is David Garza, and he is uh, the, the executive director as of July 2022 of LIDA, a leadership enterprise for a diverse America nonprofit profit organization. Um, and he's been a nonprofit sector leader uh, for 20 years. He works in fundraising, management strategy, now, of course, um, executive directorships, leadership. And uh, he worked uh, before LIDA, 10 years at the Point Foundation, um, before that, GMHC. So he's got a, a, an interesting background himself. Um, and David, welcome to the podcast. We are delighted to have you here with us today.
3: Thank you so much. I'm really excited to have this conversation.
0: So when we talk about diversifying leadership um, and the the role that LIDA does, before we get into what the organization itself does, um, you are in a position of leadership now yourself. And I'm curious, and I want to hear this from Dr. Ariza too, what was your path um, into that role?
3: Yeah, well thank you for asking because I think the story of my path really shapes the way that I think about LIDA's work. And in a nutshell, you know, we'll talk about LIDA in a bit. We really are the nation's uh, premier organization dedicated to providing educational experiences for underrepresented students to get them into some of the best colleges in the country. So for me, um, I grew up on the Mexican border in a town called Laredo, Texas, Um, and... When I was growing up, I was the kind of student who tried really hard and wanted to do everything and was kind of ambitious. And, you know, I was in the band. I was in literary magazine, I spelling bees. I (laughs) tried to do as much as I could. But I didn't know what I didn't have available to me in terms of tools for success, right? And so I knew I'd go to college. I always wanted to, but didn't really have much more specific in terms of planning uh, idea of how to do that. Um, one day when I was a senior in high school, my guidance counselor came to me and said, there's someone I want you to meet. Um, he is the, um, publisher of the local paper and he's recruiting for Princeton. And I think you should meet him. And at the time I thought it was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard. Um, I've said to people that it was kind of like someone saying, oh, NASA's in town. Maybe you can go to the moon, you know, <laughs> sure, it was, sure. it was, it was that <laughs> irrational to me or unreasonable. And. I met him, he was incredibly encouraging. I applied, you know, fortunately I got in. And then when I got in, he also paid for me to visit campus before I actually mm-hmm. made my final decision. So I had this sort of stroke of luck, this, mm-hmm. you know, miracle that happened to me that completely changed my life. Um, that's what LIDA is now. So that students don't need that stroke of luck. We provide, you know, programs, training, leadership training, you know, a test prep, all sorts of um, tools to make sure that the students uh, in this country who come from underrepresented communities, who are the best uh, in the country, can have that path forward and can be successful. So it's a very personal mission to me. Uh, It's something that I lived in a very different way, like I said, by a stroke of luck. And we're here to make sure that students have everything they need, and they don't require a miracle to. To fulfill their destiny, basically.
0: Yeah, and you know that's a, a type of story I've heard a lot actually. That yeah. you know it's one person that you met or one person that um, that opened up some door that then yeah. was sort of life changing. I experienced that. Mine came later. I was in my thirties, but it was a, a a game changer for me. So, Diane, I actually don't think that I know your your full story. Can you share that with us? I mean, not, I mean it. <laughs> How'd you get here?
2: You know, it's <laughs> interesting. I was just, um, uh, I had a doctoral student that is completing his dissertation, and it's focused on uh, chief diversity officers uh, that, where their identity is Latinx, Latino, Latina, Latine, Uh And I, I said, first and foremost, thank you for your efforts and for this focus, because Identity does matter in how we lead, and uh, I uh, appreciated his um, the questions that he asked about and asked some similar questions. How did you get here? What was your path? And I will say that uh, having grown up in Puerto Rico uh, in a bilingual, bicultural, uh, biracial household and, and and community, you know, when we talk about diversity, that 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 held a lot. Provided a lot of um, uh, baseline understanding context for how I was going to see the world. Mm. And it has given me great advantage um, in in seeing the world from different perspectives. Now, certainly always learning. I also uh, saw a lot of poverty, too. Um, And coming from a working-class family uh, where going to college was not a thing, you. And and I and I never say that I've, I'm most marginalized, but uh, but you learned the struggles of what what can be, what's possible. And one of the questions he did ask was, who were your mentors, and and I, I and who were your coaches along the way that got you this far? And so I think that there weren't many back in the day, um, and and sometimes it was by chance, the chance, right, mm-hmm. just by luck. Uh, I mean, so I. I think all my journey has been by luck. No, no one has put this in front of me to say this is your mentor, your coach, or what your your here's your. Uh, these are some opportunities for professional development. Um, that was not given to me. So you had to search for it and look for it. And I can say that if you come with a, an open mind of that, it doesn't have to be another Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx person that has to be your mentor. You open to the many possibilities that diversity comes with skill sets of all different backgrounds and perspectives. If you come with that lens, the the chances are and luck become greater.
0: Hmm. And you were a sociology professor before you moved into yes. administ- so, uh, yes. like at some point there has to you have to have a sense of, um, you know, I mean, being becoming a professor is no small feat in and of itself, but then. You know, when you're taking on, or, or David, for you, like a, an executive director role, there has to be a sense of I am capable, um, worthy of, and I mean, this is who I am. I'm, I am a leader and I can do this in this way. And I think a lot of people have a psychological, there are barriers, um, interior psychological barriers to being able to step into especially these very high-profile leadership roles. So, how, I mean, well, how, did that, how did you do that? How did you do it?
2: Yeah, I, you know, for me, uh, I, and it's different, for obviously, for everyone, um, the, the, the one thing that um, in the literature back in the day would talk about first-gen uh, parents or first gen students and they, st- they there's still a little bit of that of, of seeing it as a deficit model now there are other new newer researchers that are saying ah that's not the case come with lots of, of greatness and and support but the deficit model that if your parents didn't go to school that would that, that was a deficit but my parents always encouraged me that education was important and I find that uh, as I, as I think about just the journey um again no no script in front of me uh but i but i do think that having mentors that didn't call themselves mentors uh saw something in me and the same way that the gentleman if if i heard that it was a gentleman um from princeton right uh saw something in you uh your counselor saw, saw something in you and i think it's the one it all all it takes is one to see something mm-hmm. in you yep. and uh but there's always been the misgivings of can someone like me get this far? And the messaging was always you can't, um, yeah. except my family. Um,
3: yeah. No, I, I definitely want to echo what you said. I, in, similarly, for me, neither of my parents, you know, finished college, but that made them mm-hmm. that much more.
0: Yes. Focus
3: on the fact that I was going to go to college and that I was going to get a degree I mean this is something that I grew up hearing from them Mm -hmm. and so to your point exactly that that wasn't a deficit that was that was a motivator um and in terms of you know the internal barriers when you step into a leadership position I think similarly you know the messaging that I got from my parents and and school was that there's a sense of obligation right that like if you have certain abilities or if you are afforded certain opportunities, that there's an obligation to do it and, and that you're, you're supposed to do well by it and help your community or whatever the case is. And so, um, you know, at LIDA, we talk with our scholars all the time. You know, these are all incredible students. They're all leaders in certain ways, um, but we hear from them all the time about imposter syndrome, right? And so that's something that we that we definitely talk about and, and we build on their skills and, and and sort of build up confidence in that way. Um, I you know I would never necessarily say to a leader scholar, oh, you have an obligation to be a leader. Right. But I would say, you know, if you didn't have the right skill set, you wouldn't be here. We would not be having this conversation. And what I always say to the scholars is there is no room, whether it's, you know, whether it's the House of Representatives in Congress, whether it's a corporate boardroom, whether whatever the room is, there is no space of leadership where you do not belong. Mm-hmm. And don't ever let anyone tell you that that you don't because you do. And so we try to build up uh, resilience and confidence in by again, capitalizing on on the talents and skills that they already have. And so anyway, I can I, can
2: I I'm just curious, um, you mentioning imposter syndrome, uh, and that I even hear young professionals, young leaders, uh, students, um, underrepresented students, minoritized students, first gen, saying that even today, right, even today where you see more uh, role models in the We talk industry, about it on
0: the podcast team off the mic all the time. All the time. And on.
2: All, all the time. This is this does not go away. And I was telling a group of students uh, a few weeks ago um, in a welcome that an, an the imposter syndrome, so I, I was curious to ask you this question. Does it ever go away? You know, like, uh, do you ever find yourself not checking yourself that... Um, like, I just came out of a search uh, uh, committee where I'm the the chair, uh, and I left when... I left the space, and it. someone said, well, do you have the right job description, the job posting? Because I thought we had... Um, Change that. I thought we had updated it, and I said, "I, I, I went to my my colleague and said, I thought we had updated it, but it, we hadn't." And at yeah. that moment, it didn't matter if I was the vice president. Hmm. It didn't matter if I was the chair. I felt be not belittled, but felt I belittled myself that I should who am I to be in this space? And it happened. I didn't, I didn't share that with anybody, but I said, <laughs> I felt so minimized in that moment that I had not produced whatever perfection or whatever expectations were of me. I, I disillusioned them. That was my, my second guessing myself in that moment. And so I'm curious, I have those moments and I'm, yeah, yeah I'm, I am already am an elder, you know, I'm one of the, the ones that I look back and I shouldn't be worried about this. So I'm curious, does that ever come across in your world? Because I know it does for young professionals and young students and scholars.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's something that maybe never goes away, but the way that you interact with it evolves, right? So I, I wouldn't say that I have moments of doubt or imposter syndrome that turn into me questioning, am I the right person, am I, should I be here? It's more just like, I, it's even hard to describe. Maybe there's like a little flag that pops up in my head and then I see it and I think, no, like I'm capable, I'm here for a reason, right? And if I if I don't know the right answer to a situation, you know, I know who to ask, I know who to talk to, right? So. I think that the way that we respond to those moments evolves hopefully for the better. Um, Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of of one thing, when I first started this job and speaking of mentors, I was having a conversation with George Valencia, who's the executive director and CEO at my former um, organization, Point Foundation. And he said something to me along the lines of like, you know, when you're in this role, when you're in the executive director role, there will always be a crisis, like just get used to it. Price, crises never stop, but the way that you respond to them does change. And that's that's what makes the difference. So I think it's a similar thing.
1: Well said. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And David, I, I'm listening here and even feeling that I'm being called out a little bit with my <laughs> imposter syndrome, um, sitting here, often being the youngest one in the room, and even just my initiation onto the team of the podcast, I felt like, you know, maybe I'm not the right person. But again, we talk about those mentors that we have that are so validating and so encouraging. And as a psych major, um, makes me want to talk about, you know, motivation and values and like, how does that play out? And I hear us talking a lot about, you know, that obligation um, if you're coming from a marginalized background or multiple identities and, you know, family and those are really big important um motivating factors and i just want to hear a little bit more about you know i hear your motivation and i want to know how did that shape you know the values for lida and you know how has your work with the point foundation and gmhc and um lida kind of developed you as a person today
3: yeah no that's that's a great question and i want to start by saying I think we all do the psychological thing where it's like the grass is greener, right? Because you just oh, yeah. mentioned being mm. the, the youngest person in the room, and I remember when I used to be young, like <laughs> having, <laughs> having that feeling and thinking like, oh, these pe- these people have all this experience. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of let them speak first or listen, whatever, right? And nowadays, mm-hmm. when I find myself at Lita, like let's say in a room full of 100 college students. I see them and I think, oh, like they have all the potential. They have all the future. They have you know, this and that and the other. So it's always uh, easy to look at at sort of what is not you and and sort of, you know, put that on a pedestal in a way. But so I would say to you, first of all, you should embrace the youth and the, the future and the promise that you hold because it's something that I see all the time in our scholars. Um, in terms of how the organizations that I've worked for have shaped me. I mean, I think that um, I personally, you know, when I was in college, I don't know that I really knew anything about the nonprofit sector, right? I knew that organizations existed obviously, but I didn't really know anything about how they operated or, you know, anything like that. Um, But I knew that I wanted to have a career working in a mission-driven way. And I think that nonprofits are the best place to do that, obviously. And, you know, um, wanted to devote my time and effort to something that would ideally, you know, create some kind of improvement on the community where I was or on society in general. And so I think I've been very lucky that I've been able to find organizations that do that in a really compelling way. Lead us specifically, you know, I shared with you why I have that personal connection and why personally I'm I'm so behind the mission. Um and so what it's given me is the ability to just, you know, feel like the the, the time that I'm putting into my workday is is having an impact on people. And so you see when you meet a lead scholar, um when I meet with them face to face, it it brings everything home and it it makes all of the hours, you know, more than worthwhile. And so you know, when we do, for example, a summer institute, which is a five-week program uh, that we do um, at Princeton University, incidentally in the same dorm room where I lived my freshman and sophomore year, just by coincidence, no um, <laughs> this program, um, you know, we bring them together for five weeks, we do test prep, we do leadership training, we help them navigate which colleges they're gonna to apply to. It, it is the most meaningful experience. Um, and, and again, I, I feel very fortunate that I have the kind of work where you can feel good about about the labor you're doing and see it in action immediately.
0: Yeah, I do have to say that that mission-driven part, also, you know, in terms of working at a university, we do have a, and we're at a specifically at a social justice university, and that really does organize your 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 labor, it gets you up in the morning, um, gets you through a variety of crises in a different way um, than other people I know who work at jobs where they feel maybe ethically questionable about that job,
1: right.
0: even if they make a lot of money.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah.
0: But So David, can you, um, so Lita is focused on particularly pre-college and, and preparing students for college, or does it extend past that, that point?
3: It extends. So basically, this is a continuum of services. Um, most people who are part of our community come to us uh, by applying when they're juniors in high school. And so we choose 100 uh, of these students every year. We bring them to our summer institute, which I just described, uh, at Princeton University. And again, we do five weeks of training in everything from test prep for the SAT and ACT, to leadership training, to um, putting together the target list of the colleges where they'll be applying. We do writing instruction, both for the college application essay, but also for just academic writing. And so we work with them over the summer uh, to get them ready for the application process. Once they go back for their senior year, um, our college guidance team, which you know is present at Summer Institute, continues to work with them to finalize the application essay, to you know, navigate the application process, et cetera. Once they get accepted and they actually go to college, we have a different team, which is our college success team, that is there to ensure that they are, you know. As successful as possible academically, personally. If they present any needs, whether it's something like, you know, we need extra tutoring or their mental health challenges, the college success team um, really helps identify the sources that will solve those issues for them. So we're there to make sure that they're successful once they get to college as well. We also have a career and alumni services team. So we help them begin to plan for their post-college life, you know, whether that means we're helping them identify a career path, whether it means we're helping them, um, you know, decide that they're going to go to grad school. Uh, we, we actually have a new program that just started in 2023 called LIDA Legal, which is for anyone in the in the um, leader community, they're all welcome to apply. And basically this specific program does nine months of training, including very intensive LSAT training, um, to help them be prepared to apply to law school and then to be successful in law school, and we launched that in partnership with NYU School of Law, Harvard Law School, and Yale Law School. So that's, mm. you know, that's just an illustration of how we start when they're in high school, mm-hmm. but but it really is a continuum that we're we're designed to help guarantee success both in college and beyond.
0: You know what I I really love about this because, um, you know, the organization is very much about diversifying the leadership pipeline. But without being very prescriptive, you know, if you end up at Harvard Law School, you don't you don't need to worry about ending up in a leadership position. That is, you already are on that pipeline to leadership. If you're prepared and you're supported all through college and afterwards, you're already on on a pipeline. And I, I like the openness in terms of scholars ending up where they where they want to be.
2: I was just curious, uh, and as someone. You know, in the same way you described uh, your Princeton coming to me, uh, I was curious, um, some of the students, or many of our students, at, at, at least at our institution at Southern Connecticut State University, but I, I, I say that at at other places as well, when um, the SCOTUS decision came down, the Supreme Court decision in, 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 around affirmative action and admissions, it really was highlighting very specific to the elite schools, um, the elite schools that have very... Specific standards um, um, and how do students of of underrepresented students come into that pathway or pipeline, and and so it really excluded. Well, it didn't. It didn't actually provide clarity for the eighty percent of students or ninety percent of students that don't necessarily go to these Ivy schools. They're And so race base looks different for many of these um, universities or colleges. And so I was curious, when you're talking about the pathway, creating the pipeline or pathway for leadership, um, how does that look like for students that may not see themselves or may not even have the opportunity to think about Ivy as, or, or even Fortune 500? You know, they're, they're just trying to get a job. They're, they're just trying to graduate um, so, and they're still considered scholars in our eyes. Um, so, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm curious, how do you? Um, is it, it, it's more of an admissions question, but it really is, an, in, in how you, it's, it's beyond the admissions question. How what's the, who who are you recruiting? Um, and it, is it really focused on that very narrow specific target of of entering Fortune 500 or Ivy schools?
3: So I think that's a great question. Um, we have a recruitment and admissions team that basically, you know, more pre-pandemic uh, used to travel uh, in person to underrepresented areas and do presentations at high schools and, you know, give materials to guidance counselors. Um, we still are doing that to a lesser extent, but, you know, with the pandemic, we have really ramped up the virtual outreach. And so we have online workshops for, um students who are interested in us. Again, we disseminate our information all across the country via high schools and via the networks that we've established with our alumni and so forth. Um, And we really are targeting underrepresented communities, right? And so um, that I would say is the answer to who are we reaching out to in terms of where they go. I mean, I, I think that the idea of education itself, college, the college experience, has evolved so much in the 20 years that lead has been around. Um, I think you know, not a week goes by where we don't see an article about, you know, a college no longer participating in, in the US News and World Report ranking or you know, college uh, deciding that they're not going to use standardized testing as a, as a required metric. And I think part of that too, is that the idea of how you become a leader or where you have to go to be a leader, has evolved as well. And so it is still true that, you know, I I think the figure is something like 50% of government leaders and an even higher percentage of corporate leaders all went to one of 12 specific colleges. And so we can't just say, you know, we're going to step away from, you know, the Ivy Plus schools or, you know, they are great experiences, right? But it has expanded, right? Like, so we can talk about HBCUs, we can talk about other kinds of institutions that that can still provide a path to leadership, and we do that at LIDA. Uh, we do have students who who you know take these uh, other paths that are not necessarily Ivy Plus, and they still find success, and they're still incredible leaders. and And um, it's it, it's that's a, an evolution that's happened over the past couple of decades for sure. Thank you.
1: And that brings me to one of our next questions. Um, you already started describing, you know, this path to leadership that also um, requires that inclusion piece of people's identities and where they come from and who they want to be. And a lot of times um, it can feel difficult to be who you are while entering these spaces that, you know, historically were not inclusive of us. And so what, what do you think it takes, you know, as a young person um, in this program, um, climbing up the, the corporate ladder, so to speak, um, for them to kind of find their way without having to assimilate to um, how others are in, the, in those fields?
3: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's something that we talk about a lot at LIDA. And I really do believe, and I would say this about a corporate workplace or I would say this about a student writing their college application essay, especially in this landscape after the Supreme Court decision, where the college application essay has, I think more scrutiny than it might before. Um, I would say that the best tool that you have is is authenticity. And, you know, I had someone ask me again, specific to that college application essay question, should students be doing anything differently now um, after the Supreme Court decision? Because, you know, if I'm gonna write about my background growing up, you know, on the Mexican border, that's gonna reveal something about me. Is that a plus or a negative? Do I overemphasize it, you know, because maybe that's the way, you know? So Hmm. there's a lot of question about how to treat these these topics now. And again, the best advice that I think we can give is that um, you have to be authentic, right? If if someone is angling a college application essay in a specific way because they wanna communicate, listen, I'm from this background, I think admissions officers have um, a lot of experience, and <laughs> and they've read a million of these essays, and, th- and they can detect, you know, what is authentic and what's not. So, I think that's the best advice in that case. In the corporate workplace, I mean, I, I, it, it's really interesting. I think, um, you know, we talk a lot about finding a culture that is good for you, right? A culture that will accept you a culture that will um, not just accept you, but champion you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that gets to the heart of what a lot of companies are trying to do these days to make sure that people from all backgrounds do have that sense of belonging, You know, with the ERGs that they may be establishing and so forth. And so the, the advice that I would give in that case is pretty similar, again, authenticity. I mean, I think that the different backgrounds that we have are our strengths. They are not inhibitors, right? And I, I think that that's something that we should remind ourselves of all the time, that the point of view that I bring, uh, you know, if I were sitting in a corporate boardroom um, and if I look around the table and I see I'm the only you know, Latino person, I'm the only person of Mexican descent, I think to myself, I have experiences that these people have never gone through. And that brings value to the opinion that I'm gonna share and the viewpoint that i'm going to bring and so i think it's just really important that we know that and that we focus less on is it going to be weird because i'm not like them you know it's it, it, easier said than done right but like i would say we have to put that to the side and really focus on knowing that our difference is our strength
2: can i can i just say well said because uh i you said that so beautifully david so beautifully that That identity is or authenticity is not to be um, invisible. It's not to be not to cover it up. And oftentimes we have faculty, uh, particularly you know on our campus, but many campuses that just don't see that. They don't see room in this, regardless of what you're teaching. Which I'm always struck by that. You should be able to teach chemistry without having to know any of the identities of your students, which strikes me as so, it it doesn't speak to an inclusive experience, but just the way you said it, I really appreciate that the perspective you're coming with, um, and it's multiple identities, right? It's the intersectionality of of how we, the, the forces of our experiences, but also how we show up. Um, I, I just needed to say thank you. You said that beautifully. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, thank you. Um, and I also, you know, want to share that. I think you, you're hitting it, hitting the nail on the head when you talk about intersectionality, right? And that diversity can mean many different things. Uh, there's racial background, you know, geographic, economic, and I think that that is a topic that is very um, central right now to this conversation about the world we're in after the Supreme Court decision and what colleges are going, going to do. You know, at LIDA, we've never had race as a criterion in our selections. We look at leadership potential, we look at geographic background, we look at household income. Um, and even without having race as an explicit criterion in our selections, we have a community that's 91% students of color, right? Mm-hmm. So as colleges are trying to figure out how they proceed after this decision, you know, I I do think that there is inherent value in geographic diversity, uh, diversity of income, that sort of coincides with racial diversity in a way that we can be doing perhaps a better job if we take the right steps of creating diversity on campus if if we look a little bit more thoroughly um, and, and take some of these uh, other factors into consideration a little bit more. Well said.
0: I wonder, um, sorry, of I'm, d- I'm torn between going in two different directions, and I think we'll be able to get there in the time we have left. But, I mean, in this climate, um, our contemporary climate in the U.S., I mean, diversity for some um, is something to champion, and for others, it's a bad word. And um, for many, and, and I wonder just if what the impact is at the corporate level or even civic, civic level. Yeah. I wonder if, how that um, comes up either in um, the work that Lita does or in conversations with, I mean, your background in fundraising, like what is, what, what is or isn't kind of landing? What kind of arguments are landing with uh, organizations around, you know, wh- why we can't take for granted anymore. Like, of course it matters to have a diverse Board yeah. of Directors, and I, th- I think maybe we were under some false security, um, up until the last few years, maybe, uh, in terms of taking that that diversity is is important, essential, like of course, yeah. of course it is, but now we we can't quite say that we have to make maybe different arguments. I'm curious about your thoughts.
3: Yeah, well, I think that you know, for the people who see diversity as you know, as you described it, a bad word, or they have. Some negative thoughts about, you know, diversity and inclusion work or whatever. I, I think that occurs because they have a false notion of why diversity is important. I think I think for them, they see diversity as we're taking this extra step that's unnecessary to put someone in a place where they don't really belong, but it makes everyone feel good, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just not true. <laughs> like, um, you know, by and large, the, not by and large, but like all the time, the people who are championed by diversity uh, activities absolutely do belong there and they absolutely have the skill set and in many cases, you know, are, are more talented and deserving than anyone else at the table. Um, but they may not have gotten to that position before due to institutional biases or, or you know, racism or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so that's the false notion that they have, that, that this is sort of a token act and that you know we're, we're taking an extra step that doesn't need to be taken et cetera um what i'll say about why it is important you know if we are talking about corporate boardrooms or corporate performance there was a uh, forbes magazine stat that mentioned that uh, corporations that are highly diverse at their leadership um 10 35% more likely to to be financially successful than those that don't have diversity mm-hmm. so it's not mm. just, you know, let's all feel good <laughs> mm. or we want, we want the community to see a picture and, and believe certain things about us. It is provable that there is a benefit to diversity. And, and, and that's, you know, again, at the core of, of why an organization like LIDA exists. Like we know that to have a functioning society and for this country to be at its best it requires the viewpoints and the vision and the leadership of all of our communities, not just one or some. And so that's why we're here. Mm-hmm. Um so anyway, I hope that helps answer the question of of how we think about diversity in, in these times of, of you know culture wars and you know instant online battle and, and so forth. But it, it really is a provable benefit and 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 there's just no way
1: around that.
2: I was just gonna no, and when you were saying the, 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 the questioning whether someone has the, the skill set, those naysayers, do they have the skill set and should they be here? I also find that that is, that is a reality uh, by some, but also the fear of being replaced. And I do yeah. think that uh-huh. there is the sense, at least from individuals that I speak with uh, and groups that are in, or readings. That there is a fear, and this is true of, of what I find interesting, that it's true for the, glo- it's a global issue, that migration comes in, mm-hmm. and migrants, it's it's like replacement of the majority. Yeah. And what would that do if you suddenly had more African, uh, sub saharan Africans replacing Europe, as an example, right? The migration is so big. Or those crossing the border would replace all the Southern states in the United States and beyond, what would that look like for the country? And there is, I mean, we could debate this. We don't have enough time, not even to debate, but to have a conversation. But there is fear. But that's true from the earliest immigrants that came to our country, right? The fear that more Chinese or more Irish or more of this would take away our, our space. There's not that sense of the the fulfilling, the the way you just described that that it would just be added value, mm-hmm. but that right. it would replace our our history and our identity, and that's what diversity is. It's replacing, it's taking over our our ourselves, which is not true. But that's the perception I I believe by many.
3: Yeah, and it you know it can be, like I'm speaking personally, it can be a surprise when you run into that in real life, because, you know, growing up when I was in elementary school and, and, you know, learning about this country and history, you know, I believed all the principles, right? Like I never thought that I was other in any way or that I was not fully American. I had no idea. I mean, I had no idea that anyone would ever think that about me until you were into it. Do you know what I mean? And that could be obviously a, a, a surprise, you know?
2: Very yeah. much, very much. I wonder,
0: so David, as we come to the to the end of our time here, I'm thinking about um, how a lot of what LIDA does, it seems like to create um, a community and a, and a, a cohort up a, a shared kind of experience and sense of belonging, because a lot of the things that Lita does, like, um, you know, in terms of the college success team, career and alumni services, I mean, universities have those things, and they don't always, they're not always certainly um, useful to, uh, you know, they're often not enough people to do that kind of work for students. And then there's there are a variety of barriers for why, you know, maybe that wouldn't work. Um, so I think that that's very interesting. And I would love to hear some success stories from students who have, um, from LIDA scholars uh, and where they've ended up.
3: Absolutely. So um, I love that you've brought this up because... Absolutely, there is such a tight knit sense of community, and um, it begins during the summer institute when they first come and you know become a cohort together. Um, I was there on the departure day uh, this year when everyone went home, and you know these are students who are, you know, seventeen years old, eighteen years old, and they were sobbing in tears, having to say goodbye to each other. You know, they've become really close. And this is something that continues throughout the college experience and then beyond. Um, and we have a slogan at Lita, and the listeners sadly won't be able to see this, and it comes with a hand sign, which is Lita for life. You make oh, two Ls oh, like this. Yes, and, and that came from the students. That came from them. Um, so you're absolutely right that there is this bond uh, that is really just deep uh, among these students, and... Um, you're also right that some of the services we provide may exist on, on their college campus, you know, career advisement, let's say. But they come to us because they've built, they've, they've, they've gotten a sense of trust in us, right? Mm-hmm. And it feels less institutional maybe, right? It, it's like coming to someone who's part of your family or someone who's really close to you. And so we do have people who come to us for these services that, that aren't accessing them on their own campus. And in terms of where they've ended up, I mean, just, you know, we have alums who are, you know, corporate leaders who give back. You know, there, there's one uh, wonderful guy named Kendall who uh, is in a role at, at the Lego Corporation, for example. And so he's done uh, a lot to help foster partnership between our organization and uh, his corporation and then, you know, helping make our career institute a success and so forth. But we've had students who um, end up, you know, in law. You know, there's a number of stories I could share with you. One student who was part of Lita Legal this year uh, really wanted to uh, explore becoming a lawyer because uh, she migrated here from another country with her family. She has seen the unavailability of resources that her parents experience, and she wants to be an immigration lawyer. Oh. And I mean there could be nothing more moving than that, right? I mean, to grow up as a child, seeing the experience of your parents, and then decide that other parents aren't going to go through that if you can help it. I mean, it's that kind of work. And, um, you know, our students end up in every sector you can imagine, you know, finance, business, law, uh, government, uh, media, and entertainment. Uh, But they really are um, doing incredible work. And that gets at something that's really core about LIDA, which is that It is really motivating and and incredible to help these students get to college and then be successful at college. But the bigger picture here is that we're making an impact on society and on on these communities via the work that these scholars are doing. Mm -hmm. So LIDA is not just about impacting these scholars, it's about making a larger impact in the community as well through their work.
0: Wow. (laughs) This is really quite moving, the work that 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 Lita does um, and and the way that that you represent the organization and share these stories and connect it to your own Um, thank you, any final thoughts about um, any other questions for, I don't want to leave any questions for David on the table
2: I don't know about a question David and I don't want to end with this if uh, Zoe has something uh, that's cooking, because she's always cooking with something, (laughs) so I don't want to end with something, but so, do you have anything that you would like to share, or another question?
1: Really, just if you have any words of wisdom for young students who, you know, the the students that aren't accepted into that 100 that you take each year, like things that they can do to foster that um, that sense of like I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna get through this. And if there's any other kind of resources that have inspired you on this journey that those students could take um, part in?
3: Yeah. So I think, I think the overall message that I would say is that authenticity is really the key uh, to getting to where you need to be. Um, I think that speaks to what we discussed earlier about, you know, our differences, our strengths, and so um, my advice would just be like lean in as much as you can to that part of who you are because that's what's gotten you this far, you know so far. Um, in terms of resources, I mean, I, I think um, there are a ton of, well, first of all, I, I would try to find um, I would try to think about who you see in your world that you admire and respect, right? how did they get there and think about sort of their path and when possible you know build a build a relationship with them you know i i think what we were talking about earlier about like i I think i was in the same boat that i didn't necessarily have anyone who was like my mentor right uh and i didn't know to find one necessarily when i was that young but that's something that we should all do i mean whether you're a high school student or whether you're you know uh in a nonprofit organization like i am we there's always room for growth and there's always more to learn and i think um looking for for thought partners and mentors is is really crucial
1: thank you
2: can i just say david david you you make us (laughs) proud i i I always find myself uh, as we're honoring everyone who's played a role um in really uh, specifically to this month of, of of celebrating honoring commemorating all the beautiful Latino Latina Latinx Latin a Hispanic in in that have served us themselves but think of community advancing community and you certainly are added to to the list I, I so appreciate all the work that you do and and, and thinking of not just you, but how you advance others and your community. Muchas gracias.
3: Thank you so much. It, it is really humbling and moving to hear that, um, and I thank you for all the work you're doing. Um, but I, I really, you know, would say that um, I'm just the guy who's working at the organization. It's the organization and it's the community that's doing the the real work. And so, you know, our our core values of excellence integrity compassion community um i try to make myself live up to them because they're there already in in the students that we serve if that makes sense
0: so thank you david thank you so so
3: much
1: thank you so much